Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today, I thought I would answer a bunch of questions that people submitted on YouTube and on Facebook regarding dating. I, po- I uh, posted a, a call for questions about dating and other kinds of related topics, and we got a whole bunch of questions. And so I thought I would take this time to answer those questions. I'm going to try to rip through as many of these questions as possible and not get too hung up on any individual question. Also, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Every now and then I like to reward the patrons with a patron-only episode. And so if you're not a patron of the podcast, you won't be able to listen to this whole episode. But if you are a patron, then you will. And if you want to become a patron and hear this whole episode and all of our other patron-only episodes, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. Do it now. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, patrons. Love you so much. All right. This first question, uh, someone on YouTube named Sweetie Darling. They say, what do you think of the dating-related expressions, opposites attract, and you have to love yourself before loving someone else? Is there any empirical evidence to back these up? End of question here. Yeah, so opposites attract. Let's d- dive into that for a second. And again, I'm going to try to be as quick as possible. But in a nutshell, no, it, it's not supported by the evidence. In fact, we are attracted to people very similar to us. Now, how do we codify how different you are and how similar you are? You know, let's just take two random people. Let, let's take you. And me, let's just try that. <laughs> we, we, I know my qualities and you know your qualities and you know, I guess, some of my qualities. And let's say that we were uh, friends or something. And uh, are we similar or are we different? Um, as opposed to me and my wife, for example, you know, are, are you more similar to me than my wife is similar to me or are you different? Well, we would have to decide what measurable qualities we'd be able to say are different, you know? Do we focus on body shape? Do we focus on religious views? Do we focus on age? Do we focus on sexuality, where we grew up, our accent, our ethnicity, our political beliefs, our extroversion, our introversion, our openness to experience, our neuroticism? What do we focus on? Well, that's arbitrary for the most part. So in terms of the question, you know, those two people fell in love. Well, that's just evidence that opposites attract. Well, what usually what people are pointing towards are one person is extroverted and one person is introverted or one person is very much into the outdoors and the other person isn't or something like that. I don't know. It's usually like one aspect, like, oh, my God, opposites attract. Look at those two completely different – one person's from the city and the other person's from the country. But when you actually look at all the various things that you want to look at, political views, values, age, ethnicity, we almost always see many more similarities than we see differences. But like I said, it kind of depends on what you focus on. So it's kind of a hard question to answer. But in general, most experts will say, no, 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 opposites don't generally attract. Uh, But can there be situations where 
uh, opposites will fit well together. Like I said, uh, an extroverted person and an introverted person. Now, sometimes that can be a disaster because one person wants to socialize all the time. The other person doesn't. But sometimes that can work out really well. One person's really outgoing. When you go to a party, uh, you know, that the extroverted person drags the introverted person out on the town to parties and socializing. So the introverted person benefits from that by not being completely isolated. And the extroverted person benefits from an introvert who, you know, isn't go, go, go all the time. You know, I'm characterizing extroversion, introversion a little funny. But anyway, the other uh, uh, saying that people will say is you have to love yourself before loving someone else. And this is another difficult thing to figure out in terms of what exactly people mean. But there are two different meanings that I find that I find people believe. One is, is that they'll say that in order to fall in love, you have to work on yourself first, that, that you'll hear that, you know, you, you've had a whole bunch of bad relationships. And so you've got to work on yourself, and then you can be ready for love. Well, what do we mean by working on yourself? Usually what people mean is, you got to spend time alone. And you got to, I don't know, like, find your own independence or something. And I don't know. I, I, that's be a, that'd be a hard thing to study. But uh, I don't usually agree with that because it implies somehow that independence is better than dependence. So there's nothing wrong with bouncing from relationship to relationship. It just, it just It's more complicated than that is my point. But there is some truth to it in that uh, the more securely attached you are, which – you could say is a spectrum of how much you love yourself, the more likelihood your relationship is going to work out. Uh, research shows that the more securely attached you are, the better relationships you have in general. Not always. Being securely attached does not – having secure attachment style doesn't mean that you have uh, you know, a wonderful life. But it's, a, it's a, a correlated with that, right? So uh, when you believe that you are lovable – and that other people can be trusted, then you tend to pick the right people to be with and you tend to have relationships go better because you're just less reactive to attachment threat and tend to sustain relationships if you want to sustain. Some people don't want to sustain relationships. But anyway, so that's what I'll say to that statement of like loving yourself. All right, let's go into the next question here from Clarissa. She says, how do you know when you're when you truly are ready to be in a relationship? What foundation should you lay for yourself to ensure a healthy partnership? Okay, interesting. So these are two questions. How do you know when you're truly ready to be in a relationship? Well, you know, that's like saying how do you know if you're in love or not? You know, it, it's one of those poetic spiritual unknow un you know only you can know and you can talk sometimes people are like you know i, I don't f feel like i understand what love is and there's a lot of different reasons for that but uh, the general without going into the weeds on that uh, how do you know when you're truly ready to be in a relationship i, I would say people are always ready i mean w depending on your goals and if you don't want to be in a relationship then don't but i the the question implies i want to be in a relationship but I don't feel like I'm ready to be in a relationship, like I, I haven't done enough preparation or something. If that's the case, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you deserve to see if there's good relationships out there. 
but it also sounds maybe that the person is saying, you know, I don't, I don't know if I feel ready. I don't know if I'm up for it or not. And if that's the case, then yeah, explore that um, and just figure out what you want to do. It's a similar thing of like, uh, I've been, you know, I've been seeing some for three years. How do you know if, if you're ready to get married? There, there's no way to know the answer to that question. It's just a, a, an aspect of or a function of ex- exploration for yourself. And usually in therapy with someone that really can provide a lot of listening and some context. Anyway, the next question is, what foundation should you lay for yourself to ensure a healthy partnership? Uh, well, there are two things. One is is to become as differentiated as possible, which I'm guessing you've heard me talk about before, and I won't go into the weeds on that. But the other is to understand your attachment reactivity and how to communicate that. It is the most important thing. Listen to my whole deep dive on attachment theory. I'm, I'm guessing if you're a patron, you've, you've heard it, but it's all in there. Okay, Bert says... How do you overcome anxiety about dating when you're in your 20s and have never been in a relationship before? How do you overcome anxiety about dating when you're in your 20s and you've never been in a relationship before? Well, whenever I get questions like this, you know, how do I overcome? Usually what I'm thinking is it's wrongheaded from the start. The question is wrongheaded from the start because it somehow implies like, you're just supposed to cope and get over and let go of your feelings. And if you have anxiety about dating, you're just going to have anxiety about dating. Uh, it's just uh, there's no way to, like, make that disappear. So just accept that anxiety. Everyone has anxiety about dating. It's it's an anxiety-provoking prospect. It's, you could get rejected. Weird things can happen. It's okay to be afraid, you know. And so the next question that I would have for Bert is, you know, what is this fear telling you? What is the fear alerting you to is the fear alerting you to worries of being abandoned worries of being rejected worries of not being good enough okay so that tells you what sort of healing you need to do around feeling you know if it's excessive but if it's just regular anxiety like oh i don't know what's going to happen that you know that that's this is the anxiety that makes the world go round this is why love is so wonderful when you find it because it's it's uncertain it's a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. You never know. And if we knew, then then uh, we wouldn't have anxiety, right? But we can't know. So uh, embrace the anxiety. It's it's a beautiful thing, the anxiety and the flutter of, of love. Uh, some people believe that that's all that falling in love is or that's a big part of it. You know, the butterflies in your stomach, we are having a mini panic attack, but we interpret it as love. Like, oh, my God, I'm so in love. But a, a more fundamental way of looking at that early infatuation butterflies love chemistry is terror, <laughs> but we just cognitively interpret it differently. We're having a, a fear response, but we think about it differently. Anyway, I won't go in the weeds on that. All right. Diane writes in, what is the best way to get over a breakup, especially after realizing how toxic the relationship was when it ended? What is the best way to get over a breakup, especially after realizing how toxic the relationship was when it ended? So there's that phrase, get over. And I don't know where Diane is coming from, but typically what people are referring to is I have an emotion and I, do, and I want it to stop. And of course, you know, the emotion feels bad. And there's this notion in, in American society of just like 
well, that there's some kind of solution to that, either a pill or a technique or mindfulness or something, and you can just get rid of the emotion. No, uh, one, uh, it's not possible. Two, why would you want to? Your your emotions are what make you human. The emotions that you're having are telling you what your needs are, and so uh, you went you went through a breakup, and you re- you realized how toxic the relationship was, and you went through the breakup. And you are having sadness or regret or longing or, you know, grief. (laughs) Um, If you didn't have grief, I would go, what's wrong with you? So embrace the grief. If if we didn't care, then you wouldn't want to be in the relationship to begin with, right? So when we fall in love, even with someone who's quote-unquote toxic, our body and mind and soul – bonds with that person because they are meeting our needs for romance, for sex, for bonding, for fun, for friendship. And we get a lot of our needs met that way. And then when that relationship suddenly ends, again, even if it's a toxic person, as you put it, then uh, our bodies will miss that person because that person uh, was a was bonded to us. So when we bond, there's always the risk of it ending, which risks grief, however long it lasts. So that's my answer to that. All right, next question. What's the best way to deal with a defensive partner? What is the best way to – I have a hard time bringing up things when I'm upset since he gets so defensive. After he thinks about it and cools off, he is apologetic. i just like to know a better way to approach conflict. So – Okay, so this Bella is saying that her partner is defensive and when she bring things up. Well, it it all comes back to understanding attachment uh, reactivity in yourself and your partner. So the only reason why people get defensive is because they're angry. And the only reason why they're angry is because they're scared or hurt. It's very simple. They're defensive because they're angry. And they're angry because they're hurt or they're angry because they're afraid or both. So when you bring things up to your partner, if they get defensive, you have either inadvertently or on purpose hurt their feelings or made them afraid. So the two, the two main things that people are usually feeling is uh, being put down, made to feel stupid, made to feel little, made to feel – like they don't matter, made to feel, I don't know, just some insult of some sort. Or a fear of losing you. And it might not seem rational on the surface, but uh, a lot of conflict is driven by an underlying fear of losing your partner, just losing attachment figures, right? So for you to complain, for example, it's like, um, you know, I don't like the way that Bob, you did blah, blah, blah the other day. Well, there's an implication there that – I don't like what you did, and if this continues, I might leave you. Now, whether you think that or not, the receiver of that criticism will worry about that. They'll be like, oh, no, I'm being criticized. Does this mean the beginning of the end of the relationship? And then we stigmatize ourselves for being hurt and afraid, and then we convert it into anger because it's more safe. It's just a safer emotion to feel. But it shoots us in the foot because we get angry and defensive and then the person really does want to leave us. And so trying to uh, – so 
whenever people ask me this question, it's like, well, you know, how do I get my partner to be less defensive? Well, the the short answer is go to couples therapy because there's only so much you can do. You know, let's say you do everything perfect. You you come at your partner and you're just like, so I don't want to make you defensive. I don't want to make you afraid of anything. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I, I have this thing to say. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, you know, you can take it or leave it. On the scale of things, it's like a two out of 10. It's not even that big of a deal. Um, you know, I, I just want to tell you that I would like it if you did this thing differently. Well, that's a good opener. And then as they respond, you respond very nicely and very understandingly. And uh, the your partner could still get defensive. They could still get hurt. They could still be afraid. They could still turn that into anger and still get defensive. And uh, so there's, there, you know, your partner might not know how to navigate that very well. And they might have very significant traumas around that, of which you don't have any control over. You know, if someone has a lot of relational and emotional traumas growing up, uh, it's going to affect this. And so you uh, go to couples therapy. But there are things that you can do from your perspective. And, you know, I think I went over that. All right. Esme says, how can I be less passive aggressive to my boyfriend? I notice that I sometimes do that when I'm annoyed with him, for example, small things in the household that he keeps forgetting to do. All right. So I'm guessing Esme uh, is saying that for her, she, you know, he, small things in the household that he keeps forgetting to do, like he, you know, doesn't put the dishes in the dishwasher or something. And then she gets hurt and then converts that into anger and aggressiveness, if you will, hostility. And then it's passive with it by, I don't know, leaving, uh, putting the dishes in his bed <laughs> or refusing to have sex with him or something. You know, there's various different things. Uh, passive aggression can take a, a lot of different forms, including cheating on your boyfriend. That's another passive aggression. Um, not always, of course. But anyway, so how can you be less passive aggressive? Like I said, understand your attachment reactivity and his. So uh, it's possible he's being passive aggressive with you by not putting you know the dishes in the dishwasher. Uh, it's possible that he is shutting you out when you're asking him to do th- – it's possible he has ADHD. <laughs> it's possible that he's overwhelmed. It's possible that he's sexist and, th- and thinks he doesn't have to do it. There's a lot of reasons why someone wouldn't do small things around the house that you're asking him to do. Uh, it's possible he doesn't like you. It's possible he isn't used to doing chores, whatever. Um, so uh, what do you do from your side of things? Well, you explain how their behavior affects you in a non-accusatory way. So you go to – instead of being passive-aggressive, um, you know, people are only passive-aggressive because they start off being aggressive, being hostile. And they're only passively hostile because they're worried about being hostile in a front, in a – in a overt way. So one, you have to release yourself or somehow heal or work on the cognitions around your fear of just being direct with someone. And then the other thing is, is to figure out, well, what is my hostility covering up? My hostility is probably covering up uh, hurt. I've asked him to do these things and he doesn't do it. It hurts my feelings. It feels like he doesn't care about me. It feels like he doesn't respect me. It feels like he just doesn't care. He doesn't love me. You know, he, I keep saying this. He, he's not listening. 
I, it hurts because I, I feel like he doesn't love me. Okay, that's totally rational. It's, I think, universal to humans to, to feel that way. So you go to him with that and you just say, so, honey, you know, uh, I asked you to put the dishes away and uh, I, I see that you didn't put them away. I don't know. Uh, maybe I, maybe I misspoke earlier and, and maybe I'm just super anal about this sort of thing, but it just means a lot to me. And when you don't do it, it honestly, it hurts my feelings. It's not the end of the world. I'm not, I don't want to divorce you over it or anything, but it does, it does, it's just this little tiny pain. It, It hurts my feelings. Like it makes me wonder if, if you truly care about me and I don't want to be dramatic about it, but it, it just makes me wonder, does he, does he listen to me? Does he care about my feelings? Cause I've told him how I feel. Um, now it's not the end of the world. And if you don't put the dishes in the dishwasher, I'm not going to cry myself to sleep every night, but man, you could make me feel so good if you could just try to do this, or at the very least feel apologetic when I point it out to you. Um, that would really make me feel really special. And I, I realize for you, it might not be a, a love language for you, but it is for me. And I, I had this impulse to, to sort of become secretly hostile to you. But, you know, I, I didn't want to do that because I don't think that's fair. And so I'm just coming at you directly. Okay. In order to say that, you have to be confident. You have to have this sort of script. Uh, you have to have it modeled to you. And it's easier said than done. But anyway, that's the thing. Uh, Jenny on YouTube said, I have trouble asking for what I want. I kind of go with what the guy wants from me till he loses interest. How can I change that? What questions to ask in order for dating to turn into a relationship? Oh, so it's two different questions here. So Jenny is saying, I have trouble asking for what I want. Uh, I think I I feel like I've kind of gone over that already. I kind of go with what the guy wants from me till he loses interest. Okay. So that sounds a little bit more severe. And often what that has to do with is a desperation of not wanting to you know, when, when you feel like no one's going to really love you for who you really are, and I don't know if Jenny has this condition, but if you don't think you're inherently lovable, lovable, and, and if you don't think people are going to stick around, then you're going to be in a low grade panic at all times, trying to please someone so that they'll stick around. And then as Jenny says, and then he loses interest in me, which is actually something that happens because when you're not present and you're not in contact, partners usually will get frustrated or just fall out of love. They'll just, they just feel like uh, there's, there's no one really there. Sometimes people will call this, she doesn't have any personality, sometimes they'll say. Um, or I, I don't know, she just felt really distant to me all the time. It'll feel very distant and it'll feel like the person doesn't have any vigor <laughs> in life. And people will sometimes just fall out of love with that. Um, So uh, because people, when they're in a relationship with someone, particularly a romantic one, often what they're looking for is, is a partner in crime, someone who's like there, not to please them, but to be with them, to have parallel wants, you know, anyway. Um, So to work on that, I mean, if it's preoccupied attachment, obviously having knowledge and corrective experiences around attachment will have, you know, earned security, as we call it. And then the other question you have here is, what questions to ask in order for dating to turn into a relationship? 
That's a very interesting question <laughs> because, again, it, it implies that uh, um, if you know, how can I? What can I do to make someone want a relationship with me? Uh, what can I do to sort of entice them? Well, usually, what people want. Uh, oh, you know, the sort of good place of a relationship is where both people want the relationship. There's nothing you have to do to convince the other person. They just want to be with you because they love you and they love the relationship as much as you love the relationship. And so there's no, there's no convincing. <laughs> so uh, uh, to come from a place of, okay, what questions can I ask to turn a dating relationship into a, a real relationship? Well, like I said, usually uh, in an ideal situation, which shouldn't be that uh, uh, uncommon, is uh, compatibility that leads both people to want to sustain the relationship. But I guess specifically, you would just say, you would just say, I want this relationship to be taken to the next level. What do you want? <laughs> I want to become exclusive or I want to move in. What do you want? And in uh, most situations where you're in the right scenario, then both people are like, hey, I, I want to do that too. They might not want to do it right then, but they're just like, yeah, definitely I want to become exclusive soon or definitely I want to move in at some point or, or they'll say, I, you know, I've been wanting to move in with you for a long time. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, Sof G on YouTube said, how do I settle my deep insecurities regarding being cheated on? Uh, I was left for someone else when in a long-term relationship. My partner is incredible at reassuring me and showering me with affection I need, but the second we are apart, my head races with horrible imagery, including his past. This happens every night I fall asleep. Yeah, so there are two things. One is is that when you have preoccupied attachment – meaning that you grew up with inconsistent attachment when you were a toddler and a, and a preschool-age kid, you will sometimes develop what we call preoccupied attachment where you learned at a very early age that unless you were hypervigilant about attachment, you were going to lose people and they were going to you know, abandon you or something. And so your neurons literally are oriented in a way – to be hyper-focused on whether or not attachment is secure or not. And whenever there's any possible sign of it, of losing attachment, your body goes into overdrive. It's similar to when a soldier goes to war and before the war, helicopters and loud noises and you know the sight of blood don't really bother them, but they go to war, they see a lot of horrible things. They come back and a helicopter or a loud noise is very much associated with terror for them because that's what happened to them before. And so when they come back from war, they hear a loud noise and their body goes into overdrive, total fight or flight response. Well, if you are, as a young person, being inconsistently mistreated and paid attention to, then you become hyper, hyper sensitive to when people are moving away from you or when people are getting angry or whatever it was that was bad for you growing up. And then when your partner is kind of distant or not around, 
it reminds you of that uh, moment when you were two years old and you were left alone or you were abused or whatever it was, and your body goes into, into hyper uh, mode, be, you know, hyper vigilance mode, in the same way that a soldier goes into fight or flight when they hear a loud noise. So, uh, so having therapy around preoccupied attachment is one thing. You have uh, earned security through a secure attachment with a therapist, essentially. Um, but the other thing here is that when you're cheated on, that is a trauma to to some extent. Uh, so there's two ways of looking at it. One is it's sort of like a PTSD-like trauma where it, it shocks the system to be cheated on. and It, it can be that way. Uh, another way of uh, that people react to in, um, to infidelity is it rocks their working model of other people and themselves. So let's say that prior to being cheated on, you you had a pretty good working model of the self, meaning that you're like, yeah, I'm lovable. I'm good enough. People like me. And you had a working model of other that was like, yeah, other people can be trusted. Other people are good. Other people, when they say they love me, it's true. And when they say they're not going to cheat on me, it's true. And then you get cheated on. Uh, to some extent, and it teaches you this new lesson, and you have this new working model of self and others, uh, depending on the situation. But your new working model of the self could be like, wait, I'm not lovable. I'm not inherently attractive because my partner, you know, just decided to have sex with other people. Or your working model and/or your working model of other people changes in that, oh, other people can't be trusted. Other people. People can look right into my eyes and convince me that they love me, even though they can't possibly really love me and do what they did. They can't, po- you know, they were saying they weren't going to cheat on me, and yet they were cheating him. They said they were out uh, with work friends and they were at a hotel with this other person. They said they went on a on a guy's trip, but actually they they went on a trip with their partner or what you know their mistress or whatever the thing whatever the deal is and it completely rewrites your um, template of how you see the world and this is the destructive power of infidelity and so uh, you know you're saying here um, how do i settle my deep insecurities well it's just going to be time you have to earn that security back by having secure relationships with people where they don't cheat on you and and they don't trick you and they don't hurt you. And that's going to take time. You're you know, you can try to convince yourself, but your body is like, um, you know, I I've seen something else. <laughs> I've experienced the uh, you, if you try to tell you, look, people can be trusted. Your body is like, no they can't. I I've found out that I can't trust other people. And so it takes a while for your body to Trust other people again. You have to have a lot of trusting relation, trustworthy relationships over time, and that takes time. The other thing is, it's just it just sucks, and there's just a lot of grief that happens when when you get cheated on. There's a lot of ongoing grief that literally could last the rest of your life. This is again the destructive power of infidelity. I know people who have been cheated on, and for the rest of their life, they'll have nightmares about it, and that's it's a horrible thing to have happen to you. Now, for some people, it's not that big of a deal, but for many people, it is. So it's just one of those unfortunate things. It's like you get in a car accident and your shoulder never works quite right after the car accident for the rest of your life. 
And sometimes your shoulder is a little bit more painful than other times. Well, that's what infidelity does to us sometimes. That's what loss does to us. That's what death does to us. That's what relationships ending do to us sometimes. We like to think in our American society that we can always grow and improve and, you know, we can always hope for the future. And yeah, you know, hope for the future. But I've come to realize in my own personal life and in working with clients that life is wonderful and such a gift. But as you get older, to some extent, you're just creating a catalog or a uh, a closet full of grief, <laughs> you know, that like my, the past loved ones in my life who, who have died, including my pets. I, I'm, I'm so happy that those people and those animals were in my life, but it is horrible that they're gone. It is a painful memory that will always be painful to me. And there's sweetness there, but there's pain. And so when you're cheated on and the relationship ends, there might be some good things you can look back on, but there's a lot of pain there too. A lot of really horrible lessons to be learned from that situation. And to think that we can have some technique to get rid of that, it's just not going to happen. Uh, it could happen and you can try, but if it doesn't happen, you know, don't, don't be too surprised. Anyway. Going on next question here. The Ingrid Joseph says, how the best love how to best love someone with avoidant attachment without ultimatums? Well, yeah, I was basically saying this before. So if someone has avoidant attachment, meaning that they distance a lot and they might even come across as superior, they might criticize you, they might make you feel small, whatever. There's a lot of different manifestations, but they're dismissive attachment you know they tend to dismiss other people and make them feel small and and distanced and so how do you love someone with avoiding attachment and you're saying without ultimatums because that can happen sometimes it's like unless you stop distancing i'm going to break up with you well you know uh it's complicated but pe- avoiding attachment people will only distance themselves again because of hurt or fear. Uh, avoiding attachment people have massive amounts of hurt and massive amounts of fear that they either don't express and or don't know they have. Avoiding attachment people often feel like robots. They often feel like they don't have emotion. They'll sometimes report that. They'll be like, yeah, I don't really, I'm not very emotional, they'll say, which is not true. They, in some ways, avoiding attached people are more emotional than anyone else on the planet because the emotions aren't being addressed at all. And it'll come out in other ways, either in explosions of violence or hostility or aggression or bouts of drug addiction because sometimes avoidant people will need to turn to substances to help them feel emotions essentially or just cope with their ongoing emotionality. Or they will have some other kind of habitual problem, habit problem like um, gambling or spending money or something. And so, or sexual activity, masturbation, porn, whatever. There's a lot of different manifestations of um, the suppression of their own emotions. So 
you know, how do you best love someone like that? Well, you, you try, you, you, you do what you can, but as I was saying before, unless you go to couples therapy, the avoidant attached individual that you are in a relationship with might not have the path to change and, and you are just their romantic partner. It's hard for me as a therapist to help an avoidant attached person heal and it's very hard for a spouse to navigate that. Anyway, Lee says, what are the traits you see most in long-lasting, healthy relationships? That's a good question. What are the traits you see most in long-lasting, healthy relationships? Well, so this is a funny one because five, ten years ago, the question I, I would have immediately categorized in my mind that you have these healthy relationships, you know, the question, you know, what are the traits of healthy relationships? I I would have categorized in mind, okay, you have these healthy relationships and then you have these unhealthy relationships. And I'd immediately sort of pull together, you know, a few couples in my mind that I thought were healthy. Well, as I've gotten older and treated more and more couples and and seen the uh, wizard behind the you know, curtain, I've realized that there really is no quote unquote healthy relationship. There are, it depends on our categorization, but there's no ideal relationship. All relationships, uh, the best, you know, if we say like at one end of the spectrum are the most healthy relationships, okay? According to research and according to my observation, these relationships have problems, deep problems, ongoing problems, <laughs> ongoing conflicts that are never resolved. You know, research shows that John Gottman found that uh, pain, uh, resentment, hurt, uh, distance, um, unresolved issues that you just wish the other person would just stop doing it this way, you know, and it's just how it's going to be. The closer you get to someone, the more you depend on them, the more time you have with them, the more you're going to experience the full them and no one's perfect. <laughs> so uh, so at, at the high end of the spectrum, meaning people with the most relationship satisfaction are still experiencing a lot of problems. So let's not make any uh, uh, fantasies about that because like, like I said, about 10 years ago, I would have – Referenced, I had a colleague, a fellow professor, a uh, coworker of mine, who seemingly had this perfect relationship with his wife. And upon getting to know them better, I realized, oh no, they don't. <laughs> they have deep problems. All relationships have deep problems. Uh, now, relationships can be ninety nine percent non problematic, meaning you know, in any given day, ninety nine percent of the time, it was a good time together, but. But when you drill down and – anyway, point is, is that uh, – that's what I'm saying. You say, you know, what are the traits of the most long-lasting, healthy relationships? Well, the, the traits that I can point toward are vulnerability. So the ability for both people to say, um, that hurt my feelings or I really love you or I need you to be this to me right now. I need you to rub my neck. <laughs> I need you to go to the store for me uh, because it would mean so much to me. Or I'm feeling depressed this month because my back has been hurting along. You know, vulnerability. Both people are able to be vulnerable. Uh, 
The second trait that I'll point to is the ability to understand attachment uh, reactivity and in themselves and in other people and how to navigate that. That's a big one right there. Another one is giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. Now, these are behaviors. They're not really traits. So your question is traits. Uh, you know, I'm going to avoid traits because, I mean, unless we just say secure attachment style as a trait, then, yeah. anyway, I'll move on. Amanda says, how can you co- combat your need to re- for reassurance when you're in a healthy and loving relationship? How can you combat your need for reassurance? My fiance and I are very much in love, but I feel that I need a lot of reassurance from him that he still loves me. This is the healthiest relationship I've been in, so I wish I felt more secure. Uh, well, okay, so there are uh, two things. One is is that don't com- don't combat your need for reassurance. Anyone, <laughs> I find this to be a big problem that when people have an upwelling of the need for reassurance, they will try to suppress it. Why? Why would you do that? Uh, in any context, whether it's a romantic relationship or at work or whatever, uh, we are human creatures, emotional, s- dependent, social creatures. So we need reassurance in the same way that your dog and cat need daily reassurance that you love them. Humans have that too, maybe more so. So don't combat your need for reassurance. That's one. The second thing is uh, that I'll say is that, um, you know, you say you wish you felt more secure. Okay, great. But the path to feeling more secure is recognizing your need for reassurance and asking for reassurance. So there's that. The last thing I'll say is uh, the only possibility where this is a problem is if you are just unrelenting (laughs) with your need for reassurance, like, Every five minutes, you're like, you love me, right? You lo- Reassure me that you love me. Like, if if it's every five minutes, then okay, there's probably some other thing you need to be doing, like going to therapy, obviously, and asking your therapist for reassurance so you don't need to ask your spouse for reassurance that much. But, but I wish people would embrace their need for reassurance. Uh, the theme for today, and maybe for always, is that when you have an emotion, your first response culturally will be, how do I get rid of this emotion? This is the dumbest thing we've ever been taught by society. Your emotions are there for a reason. It's like, uh, I have a need for water. Uh, I'm thirsty. How do I suppress my thirst? Well, no one's going to say that, right? They're going to be like, well, if you're thirsty, drink some goddamn water, you weirdo. Well, if you have need for reassurance, ask for reassurance. If you feel insecure, ask for reassurance. If you feel like you're alone and lonely and distanced from other people, ask for people to be close to you. Uh, now, it might not work out, but at least, but don't suppress your emotion and don't suppress your thirst for so- socializing, you know. Um, you know, now you might not be able to get what you want. But don't suppress what you need, right? All right. Marie says, oh, no, that person just had a funny question. All right. Alverio. Alverio? 
says, my friends say that I am too picky when finding a partner. I have had past relationships that I invested too much time in, and my biggest fear is settling. How can I determine the difference between being too picky with a fear of settling? Do you really know when you found the one? End of question here. So, all right. So this person is uh, picky, according to, I think, his words, finding a partner and when he invests too much time in. See, his biggest his biggest fear is settling. Well, so there's there's two things I'll say. One is is that we have this um, idea that people have a fear of commitment. You'll hear that you'll hear that phrase like, "Oh, that person has a fear of commitment." No one has a fear of commitment. What they have a fear of is, I you know, committing. And then wanting to change your mind. <laughs> That's what you have the fear of is what if I commit and I change my mind and I want to have sex with someone else? Uh, what if I commit and I want to change my mind and I want to date someone else? Well, there's two different things to that. One is, is that uh, some people have a complex around guilt, meaning that they were guilt-tripped a lot growing up. And so they, they really try to avoid guilt. And so one of the ways you can avoid guilt is by never committing. And one of the ways you can never commit is to be very picky and to always preemptively end a relationship. So sometimes people like this are actually trying to avoid the pain of shame and guilt of hurting someone else's feelings. In their effort to not hurt other people's feelings, they will run from other people and not get their own needs met and obviously hurt other people along the way. The other thing I'll throw out here is there's nothing wrong with being picky. (laughs) You know, if you're 65 years old and you've been dating for 50 years or something and you've been picky that whole time, then, you know, maybe there's a, maybe you have, maybe you're too picky, but a lot of people will, there'll be like 28 and they'll be like, I'm so picky. It's like, well, you know, maybe you just haven't found the right one yet. We, we have this uh, notion on our society that you should be able to find the one within a certain amount of time. But in my experience, that is just not true. It, sometimes it, it might take you until you're 45 until you randomly meet the one that sucks. You know, some people meet the one when they're 15 years old. My sister is married to the person she went to high school with. My, my, my parents are high school sweethearts. <laughs> they met in high school. So it, some people meet when they're teenagers. Other people meet the, the one when they're 65. It's just the magic of love. And there's just no way to quantify it. So I don't know if that's a situation that Elverio is in, but, you know, that could be another option. It's okay. It's okay to be picky. Um, people are like saying, uh, you know, you're you're not settling down. Anyway, um, but the other question here is, you know, do you really know when you found the one? Yeah, again, it's a really hard question to answer. Uh, I mean, an impossible question to answer, really, because – uh, it's hard to know. Now, I've explored this question with people before in therapy. And the way that you explore it is through just a lot of exploration of and trying to get to your feelings because that's where you'll know if the person is the one when you're in connection with your feelings. And some people aren't really in connection with their feelings. There's no intellectual way of def- of des- deciding you found the one. Like when, 
when I decided that my wife was the one when we first started going out, uh, it was an emotional thing. I, I had to know my emotional feelings when I was with her and when I thought about her. That's when I knew that she was the one. It was all emotional. It had nothing to do with I had I guess it had a little bit to do with intellect, I suppose, but it was mostly an emotional feeling, right? So some people really aren't connection in connection with their emotions and so helping people to get in connection with their emotions can sometimes help people figure out whether or not someone is the one or not. It's a very helpful thing to be in connection with your emotions when you're dating, by the way. Um, the other thing here is polyamory. There are seemingly a percentage of people who are either born or raised in a way that they have essentially a sexual orientation towards non-monogamy. And they find that when they're in a monogamous relationship that they can't stand it, that they they want romantic and sexual attachments, but they don't want only one. And so they are a polyamorous person, non-monogamous oriented person, constantly trying to shove themselves into a monogamous uh, hole and uh, and it's never working. And so sometimes those people will run from relationships because they want you know to have more than one love, but they bounce from person to person and everyone outside of them say, oh, that person's so picky and they're so afraid of commitment. Um, it's possible that uh, polyamory is the way, you know, uh, if this person who Alverio were to experiment with that, and maybe they already have, but it's possible that it's, okay, I'm going to enter into the polyamory world, and it usually is a world, like a, a community, and you, you know, Alverio finds a woman to date, and she is poly, poly and she has a boyfriend already. And Alvario and this woman, they start dating and he falls in love with her. She falls in love with him. And and then that time comes when he starts going, oh, I want to run. And he's like, well, maybe instead of running, I'll say, hey, is it okay if I start dating someone else? And the woman's like, yeah, sure. So Alvario starts to date other people, goes through all the rigmarole, finds someone else. They start dating. And then he's like, you know what? Uh, although I'm really into this new person, I still – really want to retain that romantic and sexual uh, relationship with that, you know, the first woman. And so now I have two people. Wow, this feels a lot better. I I don't have to uh, be monogamous. Anyway, so that's a possibility. But of course, you know, polyamory is a community and it's you do it all in the up and up and it's a lot of honesty, a lot of upfront talking. KTZ says, what is the best way to tell my partner I want us to get married? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is the best way to tell my partner I want us to get married? Just tell your partner you want to get married. <laughs> What's the best way? I mean, I suppose there's ways to do it in very flashy ways, like, you know, you hire a flash mob to sing a song or something, or you rent a, a sky rider uh, in an airplane, or you, I don't know, fly to Italy and propose on next to the Coliseum or something. But I don't think that's what this person is saying. You know, what's the best way to tell my partner I want us to get married? Just say you want to get married. Uh, it implies somehow like there's a finagling that you have to do, um, which is not a right-headed approach. Gabriella, um, relationships but between friends and 
Oh, relationships, but between friends. And breakups between friends. That's just These are just statements. VB, um, how, how do you create trust in meeting someone in the first few days? Okay, I get this question in various different ways. How can I trust someone in the beginning? You should not trust someone in the beginning. <laughs> Why would you trust someone in the beginning? You don't know that person. Don't trust them. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be paranoid or assume they're going to do bad things, but don't don't assume that they're going to be trustworthy. You don't know who that person is. It takes time. Trust is earned. Trust is a time uh, process. That's is an experiential process. Your body and mind need to have data, right? Like if I came to you and and you know not in a romantic relationship, but if I came to you and I was just like. Look, I have this, or not me, because you probably know me from the podcast. A random person out the street says, "Hey, if you invest a thousand dollars in my business, uh, I guarantee you that I'll double your money in a month." Okay. So, are you supposed to trust that person? Uh, most people say no. Why would I trust that person? Okay. Now let's say that this is your best friend, and you have seen them personally. Double people's money every month. Now, it's probably a Ponzi scheme. But, you know, anyway, my point is, is that if you see someone and you know someone and you have experience with them over time, that when they say something, they actually mean it and that they can be trusted, then you trust them. But only after the data it comes in, right? So the question, how do I create trust in meeting someone in the first few days? Uh, don't. It, there's this notion somehow that you're supposed to trust people in the beginning or – that it's it's possible to trust people in the beginning. We evolved uh, as species uh, until rather recently, basically only seeing the same people day in and day out for our entire lives. And people around the world still kind of live this way. But in our society today, we we hardly see any of the same people in our daily lives. And the people we do see, like at work, we barely know them. We barely hang out with them or we barely have experience enough to really know who that person is, like uh, really who that person is, you know? And so we live in a world where essentially it's just a bunch of strangers. Sometimes even our own spouses are kind of strangers to us because we don't spend enough time with them. And yet we want to trust. We want to have trusting and trustworthy relationships because of course we do. And we're like, how come I don't have any trust? How come nothing – it's because we live in a very upside down world where we don't have enough time with people to trust them. So uh, find your people, build those relationships. And this is another problem with mobility that people will just be, oh, I got a job in San Francisco, moving to San Francisco. You are, potent- not always, but you're potentially leaving all of your social and family and you know, maybe you and your partner are moving across the country, but all of those relationships you've cultivated are now uh, diminished, maybe gone, and you have to start over with a whole new group of people. And in our American society, we're just like, well, that's the American way, right? Mobility, moving up in the world, promotions, uh, moving to the big city. There's nothing wrong with moving. I've never moved. <laughs> I've lived within the same, you know, basic area my entire life. And I still, I'm still friends with people I went to preschool with and I still hang out with them, you know, because they also haven't left the area. And 
I find that to be very helpful to my well-being. Um, anyway, Anna says, I really would like to know what to do when someone launches a smear campaign against you. What? I really, really would like to know what to do when someone launches a smear campaign against you. Oh, a smear campaign, you know, we usually uh, have that reserved for like politicians and famous people. But I'm guessing what Anna is talking about is Anna has a friend or an, an ex, a former friend who is talking crap about them uh, in a big campaign and turning a lot of people against Anna. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, uh, I've been there before personally. And what do you do? You know, you can get involved in the game playing and try to defend yourself. I mean, but then everyone's like, well, what do you, I mean, it's just, it's just the worst. Um, sometimes you just have to cut your losses and say, okay, I guess that group of friends is now off the table. I don't know. That's a tough situation. Maybe go to the person doing the smear campaign and try to repair that relationship. That's probably the best thing I could say, if that's possible. You know, maybe not you become friends again, but you can just play nice. You know, just be like, hey, I've been noticing that you've been, people have been saying, and I don't know if it's true, that you've been saying, uh, you know, this and that about me. And I just have to, I just want to tell you, like, I've, it really hurts my feelings and it gives me a lot of anxiety because I don't know what people are thinking about me. And if you are seeing those things, I, I just don't feel it's fair. And it, if you want to say something to me directly, then, you know, let me have it. Uh, but, you know, behind the scenes, it, it gives me a lot of anxiety. Um, is there something that I did to you that you want me to apologize for? Because I'm open, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe that's the best thing I can say. All right. Uh, Jessica says, should I be worried that my boyfriend of one and a half years is friends with one of his exes? Uh, no, you should not necessarily be worried. Uh, so there's a lot of different, uh, there's more here. Like they have phone conversations for at least one hour or more four times a month. Uh, he used to talk to her more, but we have been fighting about it and it has gone down to four times a month the last two months. Okay. Well, so it's a lot of different things. And of course, just knowing from this, there's, there's no way to know for sure, but there's a lot of possibilities. Um, I'll, I'll talk about in the, the defense of your boyfriend, a possibility, which of, of course I don't know, is that uh, I find it actually kind of strange that in our culture, we actually will pathologize people when they stay friends with their exes. It, the default should be friends with your exes. That should be the default. Now, there are cases where that's not a good idea for one or both people. But you fell in love with someone, you were friends with that person, and you decided, you know what, our relationship isn't working for whatever reason. So we're going to end the relationship. But, you know, we still have a relationship. We just don't have a romantic and sexual relationship anymore. So now we're, as they, as they say, friends. Um, you have a shared history together, all that kind of stuff. And so th there's nothing wrong with being friends with, with your exes. So there's that. Now, there's also nothing wrong with being threatened by that and feeling uh, scared that, wait, my boyfriend is talking a lot with his ex-girlfriend, talking like on the phone for like an hour at a time. 
Is he still in love with her? Is he going to leave me? Okay, that's normal emotion. Emotions are our friends. What are they telling us? Well, they're telling us that we're not secure in this relationship. It has nothing to do with this girl, this woman, this ex. It has everything to do with how secure I feel. And that's what I'm going to address. That's the attachment awareness. I don't need to get rid of this woman. What I need to do is recognize that I don't feel very secure in this relationship. And I, to solve that, will just ask him for us to work on me feeling more secure. So he gets off the phone and you just go to him and you say, so I, you know, I don't want to take you away from your, uh, you know, friend here that used to be an ex, but, but I do want to tell you that when you're on the phone with her, I'm alerted to the fact that I don't feel very secure in this relationship. And that, that might be my fault. I don't know, but can we work on making me feel more secure such that when you're on the phone with your ex, I don't feel threatened by that. That's the way to go. When you have jealousy, there's this compulsion to be like, I need to get rid of that woman. Well, if you took that approach to everything, eventually you've just essentially isolated your boyfriend from every possible threat. You're basically, you're just creating like a fence around him. Is that really going to make you feel secure? No. It'll solve the incursions on of threat to your life, but it's not going to solve the underlying insecurity. You deserve to feel more secure, and so you talk about that. Um, the other thing I'll say is that it's possible that your boyfriend is is still in love with his ex and doesn't know it or does know it or there is a threat there. There's a possibility there is a threat. And so asking your boyfriend to make a choice is is okay in that situation. So, you know, a, a more extreme case would be or a more obvious case would be like you start dating someone and you're both dating other people. And then at some point you're, you stop dating other people. And then you're, you're like, oh, I wonder if this guy is still dating other people. And so you go to him and you're like, so um, let's be exclusive. Uh, you know, I want to be exclusive. And he's like, um, he's like, yeah, okay, let's be, yeah, but, you know, I want to be exclusive, but, you know, I'm still, I'm still dating this other woman and I, I like you better, but I, I don't want to give this relationship up. Well, in that situation – we would say, well, you know, you have to make a choice. Is it a deal breaker for you or is it cool for you? And that might be a complicated thing. But at some point you decide, let's say, you know what? This is a deal breaker for me. I've decided I want to go exclusive with this guy. And unless he's ready to go exclusive with me, then this is over. So in that situation, you're saying this other relationship that you're in is a threat to my relationship with you. And it's a deal breaker for me. So ultimatum time. You make a choice. It's me or her. You know, uh, you know that's okay. You'd, it's not a hostile situation. It's just you know, it's just life choices, and you, you lay it out in a non-hostile way. Uh, so this isn't exactly like that, obviously. But you know, it's in it's in the ballpark. Shall we? It's in sort of in the ballpark potentially of like, look, I want to be number one, number two, number three, and number four. And so, uh, you know, she could be number five, this ex of yours, which means that you, you put as much into this relationship with me um, as I'm trying to put in with you, meaning that you talk to me for an hour uh, every week about your thoughts and dreams. You know, I want, I, want, I want to be that person. I don't want her to be that person. Uh, 
um, you know, that's okay. Uh, but it's pretty, you know, as I've been talking about this, I hope you understand, depends on a lot of different things, depends on, you know, people's wishes, their deal breakers, depends on, uh, are there other ways of navigating this? You know, because like I said, there's a way of navigating this where Jessica feels secure in her boyfriend's love for her, such that she doesn't mind if her boyfriend talks with her, one of his exes every now and then. It, it just it doesn't bother her because she's like, you know what? I'm 110% sure that my boyfriend loves me. And there's really nothing that could come in between that. And uh, he's reassured me that he just, you know, him and his ex-girlfriend, they just have a, you know, a friendship and they like to talk to each other. No big deal. And shouldn't we all have as many friendships as possible in our lives, especially today in today's weird world? So if if an ex is a good friend, then, you know, try that out. But like I said, it, it could be a deal breaker. It could be it could be an actual threat too. Anyway, let's go on to another question here. Natalia, talk about the rules of breakups and how to deal with the deep feelings of guilt if you're the initiator of one. Uh, Natalia, that's a great question. Okay, the rules of breakups and the deep feeling of guilt. Well, so you're you're sitting there and you've been thinking about it a long time and you really just don't want to be in this relationship anymore. You've You've gone up and down, you've talked about it with your friends and you've just decided, yep, I cannot do this. I don't want to be with this person anymore. I'm about to cheat on this person. Or I just can't stand looking at this person anymore or they're – I don't know. But by the nature of this question, Natalia, you know, feeling guilty, it sounds like the person isn't terrible, right? Because if the person's terrible, you're just like, I don't feel guilty leaving this person. So, the, you know, you're thinking about an amicable breakup and then you then the guilt sets in. Oh, my God, this is going to kill him. This is going to make her feel terrible. She, He's going to he's going to be so hurt. She's going to hate me when I when I tell him this. And you know, those are good feelings. You have compassion and your guilt is an indication that you care. If you didn't feel guilty, you would be a you'd be a psychopath. You'd be a Ted Bundy who doesn't have any empathy or compassion to other people. Welcome the guilt into your life. It is, it's a shitty situation, man. It is like to break up with someone and to break their heart, potentially to give them grief, actual ongoing, uh, you know, bereavement for years to come. That's a terrible thing to dump on someone. Now, it's inevitable, right? Because you've thought about it. You've gone to therapy. There's no way around this you know, you don't want to make this person suffer any longer than they have to with a partner that doesn't want to be with them. There's no way around this. It's going to happen. It has to happen. This breakup has to happen. And thus the pain that my partner is going to go through, presumably or predictably, is also going to happen. This person's going to cry. This person is going to feel depressed. This person is going to feel like they can never find another person as good as this relationship, maybe. I don't know. That is a terrible thing. And it's my fault, you know, to feel like that. It's not really your fault. It's like, you know, when you fall out of love with someone, you just fall out of love with them. 
it's it's often geared as like, you know, you didn't work hard enough on this relationship. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But love is what it is, right? So it sucks. And the guilt is going to be there. And it's it just, it just is. Now, the great part of your question here is, uh, what are the rules of breakups? Because you can mitigate a lot of your guilt by doing the right thing. So let's say you're driving your car and you get a little distracted and you hit someone that's crossing a crosswalk. You don't kill him, but you hit him pretty hard. Well, you feel bad. You feel guilty. You hurt that person. All right. There's a why in the road to extend the metaphor. You can drive off and say, see ya. I don't want to be a, and then, and you don't help him. Or you can stop the car, get out, call 911, say you're sorry, say it was your fault, say you'll pay for the medical expenses or whatever your car insurance will. Now, it doesn't erase what you did. It doesn't erase the guilt, but you can mitigate it quite a bit. You can make your guilt worse by doing, by driving off, right? Or blaming it on them or something. Well, the same goes with a breakup. You can break up and bounce and say, see ya, I told you, I didn't want to, you know, clean break. Or you can stick around and actually help the person in the way that they want to be helped. So the rules of breakups, and I've talked about this before, uh, generally speaking is have compassion and act from that compassion, whatever that means. And to be committed to perhaps a process of breaking up that takes longer than you hoped it would. <laughs> like a lot of people hope it's like, okay, I'm going to sit this person down and I'll break up with them. We'll talk about it for a couple hours and that'll be that. And I never want to talk about it again because I don't want to feel this bad feeling. I don't want to feel the guilt. Well, that's the hit and run. Okay. Uh, it depends if, you know, if the partner is abusive or something, obviously then you don't have to deal with that crap. But in most situations, uh, you have to commit yourself. The rules that I have of ethical breaking up is you have to commit yourself to, okay, I have been struggling with this breakup emotionally for months. And it's been a process of me sort of grieving the relationship and, and making sure this is the right choice and blah, blah, blah. I've gone through a lot over the past number of months to prepare for this moment. Well, when you tell the other person about your breaking up with them, that person now begins that process. And so it's going to take them time to adjust to the idea that you're breaking up. And they need to reach out to their therapist and their friends and their family and their coping. But, but you can be a part of that. And the way that it sometimes looks is, okay, you, have, you sit down, you do the breakup. It's two hours long. And you say you're sorry. And you don't blame it on them. You know, follow the Robin song. <laughs> Tell your girlfriend, say it's not her fault. Uh, give her reasons. Because um, uh, you you found somebody new. Um, great song, by the way. I just love that song. And such a great message, too, along these lines. Um, uh, it gives me chills. I just love that song. It's such a great song. I even love the, the video where she does all the weird dancing. <laughs> Anyway, um, that album actually is really great. And when she uh, works with Reichskop, I just, I just, it's an awesome combo there with Reichskop and Robin. Anyway, going off tangent <laughs> um, is, you know, you have those, those two 
uh, two-hour breakup and you say you're sorry and you give your reasons, but you don't blame it on them. And you, you just, you give, and you say, you say, make sure you say these things. You say, I definitely loved you. And I still sort of love you, I guess. But, you know, romantically, I was in love with you for this period of time. And then something happened around six months ago when I started to feel like I wasn't in love with you anymore. But I was confused. I didn't know. And I thought maybe if I just gave it time. And and then I fell out of love with you. Okay. So this is an important thing that you might need to repeat over and over again, because one of the things that happens to people when they're being dumped is they wonder if the person ever loved them. And then if they conclude, no, that person never did love me, which a lot of people will conclude because they're hurt. That is a terrible narrative that is uh, similar to what I was saying before in terms of the damage that will last forever to, to have this idea of like, wait, so that person who said they loved me, they didn't really love me the whole time. That's a very destructive narrative. Whereas you can correct for that by saying, no, no, I absolutely was in love with you. Uh, it, but it changed around this time. And I don't know why it changed. It just did. And I'm sorry. And it has nothing to do with you. It, it just, I don't know. I just, I think the spark of the relationship just sort of went out or something. Okay. So that's one thing. Now, the person is going to be hurt and they might be afraid of, of lots of things. They might get angry and they might say, well, you didn't work hard enough on the relationship or, you know, this is the worst possible time you could ever break up with me. How come you're doing it right now? That is normal. They're angry and they're, they're out of control emotionally and they're going to accuse you of things. They're going to, they're going to say like, um, you never loved me and this is the dumbest, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in people is when someone gets dumped, one of the first things that they will get angry at and they'll feel very righteous about is the way in which they were broken up with. They'll be like, yeah, and then he took me to a park. Who breaks up with someone at a park? That is just the dumbest, you know, they'll always have some kind of thing like that. And I'm always thinking, well, what? what's a good way to break up with you? <laughs> Being broken up with sucks. Now, there are obvious bad ways like ghosting someone or texting someone, but... But honestly, sometimes texting someone a breakup isn't actually that bad. It depends on the person, but sometimes when you text them, it gives them a chance to think about it. I don't recommend it, obviously, but the point is, is that uh, when you break up with someone, they'll probably get angry at you for things that you don't really deserve to be angry uh, and for them to be angry at you about the way you broke up, the fact you didn't work hard enough in their relationship, maybe all the things that they hated about you. They just start bringing, I never, you know, I hated you too, by the way. You know, you always did this and this. And this. That's going to happen. Expect it. Don't, don't be surprised, okay? Put it in context. They are in pain and they're coming out swinging. Don't get involved in it. You know, be differentiated. This person is having a freak out right now. That's normal. And I'd, I'd listen, you know, just, yeah, you know, I get it. And I'm sorry. And, um. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't know another way to break up with you. Um, I, I don't know how I could have done it any differently. I, I thought this would be the best way. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I, I get that you didn't like me too sometimes. Or, um, yeah, I get that you think that I didn't work hard enough in this, in this relationship. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I didn't work hard enough. I don't know. Um, all I know is that 
um, I loved you for a time and then it just, I just didn't. And I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. Okay. So that kind of conversation might have to happen periodically over the next number of months, not just the first breakup session, but two days after, you know, they call you up and be like, we got to talk about this, you know, and then they try to get you back. Hey, you know, what if, what if we just took a trial separation or, you know, what if we, I'll be better, I'll be a better partner, you know, we'll have sex more or whatever the bargaining phase is. And, and, you know, if you're for sure breaking up, you know, you hear it, you listen, you're okay. Yeah. I, I know. I, I don't think, I don't think I'm up for that. I'm really sorry. I, I just don't, I don't think that would be good for either one of us to do. And then they're hurt and they're angry and they come out swinging emotionally. And then you listen and you care and you, you don't get involved in them tit for tat. And then a week goes by and then they get drunk and they start texting you all sorts of terrible things. And you don't get involved into texting the next day, call them up. Hey, you got a lot of texts from me last night. Just want to know if you wanted to get together and talk about it, get together talk about this is ethical breakup these are the rules of breaking up (laughs) and i find them to be so obvious and yet no one does this or very few people do it you know some people do it and some of you do it out there so many people don't do it and they just like they do drive-by breakups you know hey i broke up with you uh why are you getting angry at me that's unfair it's like come on be realistic about this here now, there are exceptions, obviously, if there's domestic violence, if there is a lot of unfair hostility, a lot of toxicity or something, and damage to your own self-esteem as you interface with their feelings about the breakup, then, yeah, um, factor that in for sure. But that's what I'll say about that. Uh, all right, let's do one more. Soraya says... How can never-married, successful, well-traveled, high-educated, intellectual women in mid-30s build a relationship and marry strong men with similar characteristics without having to act dumb? (laughs) Men of same level get scared and run away from me, and men who need financial support and who can't keep up intellectually seem to keep pursuing such women uh, looking for advice. Um, okay. She also says, uh, we get told repeatedly to fake being dumb till we get the ring. Uh, yeah. Well, so the very short answers I'll have to this is that, yeah, I get it. Uh, we have a sec, we live in a, success- a, a sexist society. A lot of societies have a lot of sexist ideas to it, including that in order for men to feel good about themselves as a man, they have to be better than their uh, woman partner. They have to earn more money. They have to be smarter. They have to be more accomplished. They have to have more prestige. And for the woman to make more money, to have more prestige, to have more power, to be more liked, to be more intelligent, or even on the same level, uh, it what it does is be, because the man has been told time and time again through vol- multiple vectors that he is worthless. He's a cuck. 
he's a mama's boy. He's a, you know, he's a pussy if his wife is more powerful than him and earns more than him. There's so many messages around that. And, uh, and a lot of enlightened people will propagate these ideas as well. You know, uh, you'll see a heterosexual marriage and say the guy, um, the, the, say the woman has a good job at a bank or something, and the man is having trouble with finding good employment. And he does this and that, and he'll have stretches of time where he won't be working for a few months. And the two of them are fine with it. But people on the outside, like I said, liberal, woke people will look at a couple like that sometimes and they'll just be like, that guy is a, you know, what's wrong with that guy? He needs to get off his ass and get a job. There's just so many messages around masculinity and intelligence and power and money. And so as a accomplished woman in your 30s and you are trying to meet someone, you're going to you're going to trigger a lot of men's traumas around gender. And it's not a conscious thing that men have, you know, it's it's something that it's in their bones, right? And so people are like, "Hey, you got to act dumb around these guys. You got to you got to play down your accomplishments. You have to play down your intelligence." And you know, I don't know the answer to that. I, on one level, it's like, well, you're not going to change society's idea of gender. And so if if you're looking for someone, especially, I guess, in the beginning, uh, maybe that's a strategy. But the, the I would like to hope that there there's a man out there who either just doesn't care or has learned not to care. And you need to find that person. And so the second thing I'll say is when you run in particular circles, there will be more misogyny and more sexism or more of this type of sexism. Like one of the uh, interesting things when I was watching the Paris Hilton documentary was Paris, Paris is Paris's sister was saying, you got to settle down. You got to find a man. And Paris was like, well, you know, sure. You know, I'll date guys, but I don't want to find it. I don't want to, um, I don't want to be with a, what was that? Some kind of a bitch, she called these guys. Someone that would hold her purse while she uh, took pictures at, in, on the red carpet, that kind of thing. Anyway, I can't remember how she was phrasing it, but she was like, I want to be with a guy who is just as powerful as me or just as successful as I am in my career. And that's going to be hard given that she has earned – uh, millions upon millions of dollars and is extremely famous and has very successful businesses and blah, blah, blah. So that really limits the amount of uh, potential mates that she could have an attachment with and a companionship with, right? And you'll see famous people will do this sometimes. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea to limit yourself that way, but maybe it is. You understand each other. But what it, it sort of made me sad for Paris because I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if you could sort of let go of that uh, template of like they have to be as or more successful than I am? Can't you just be with someone? Can't you just have a a boyfriend and or a husband or a partner, or companion that you just like their company and they love you and you love them? Can't you just have that and not worry about how it's seen from the outside world? Can't you just have that? <laughs> um and so uh, 
I wondered if Paris's world had a lot of people like that because in my world, it's not really like that. Of course, in my world, um, in my circle, there's sexism and there's a lot of ideas like that. But uh, I would like to think that in my world, uh, in my circle, my little cultural pocket, if you will, there is a- enough gender awareness and flexibility that women could earn more than men and that uh, more than their partners, heterosexual partners, and it wouldn't be a disaster and the man wouldn't be threatened and the man wouldn't run away from a woman just because she earned more. So sometimes I wonder, you know, so Sir Saraya, I wonder if I were to talk with her, I would ask her like, well, what, what cultural pockets are you existing in? Because some cultural pockets will have a lot more basically what's happening in some cultural pockets is the men are one being pumped with a lot more toxic masculinity one and two the men in some groups are made to feel more uh, um, inferior you know through racism or some other thing you can make a whole group of men feel inferior for a lot of different reasons and then those men need to uh, attach themselves to more masculinity to counteract the ongoing inferior that they've internalized from society. You'll see that happen. You'll see people who, for example, come from poverty maybe, and they have been oppressed and made to feel shameful for their lack of money. And they've internalized that such that they actually believe that they're inferior to other men. And then they will compensate for that by being hyper-masculine as a way of asserting themselves to others and themselves that they have worth in the world. And you'll see that. So sometimes uh, thinking critically about the cultural pocket that you're existing in might help if you're a successful woman trying to find someone who would appreciate you uh, for who you are, not only tolerate your success, but actually like respect it and appreciate it and uh, enjoy it and compliment it. Like you deserve that for sure. So um, that's what I'll say to that one. Uh, Let's see. So many questions here. I said that was going to be my last one, but I'm just scanning. Should you wait? Should you wait until you've treated your childhood trauma before you start dating? No. Uh, if everyone did that, they'd never be dating. <laughs> uh, you can. You certainly can wait to date until after you've treated your childhood trauma. There's no nothing wrong with that, but there is something potentially problematic there because you know we most of us have ongoing tremendous companionship needs romantic needs and so uh putting it off for a few years or 10 years might not be advisable um in a perfect world i suppose it, it'd be great to do that but sometimes it's just not crap practical let's see how do you manage the desire to get to know someone new while dating with the doubt and anxiety that comes from not being sure if you like them um, yeah, so this kind of gets back to the question I had before uh, around trusting people. So this person's uh, Stephen is like, um, I want to get to know people while I'm dating them in the beginning, 
But, you know, sometimes I have doubt and anxiety about, you know, I, I don't really know if I like them or not. And how do I balance that? Well, I think one of the, there's there's two things. One is is uh, listen to your gut. There's nothing wrong with listening to your needs. Maybe just if you don't like them, just cut it off early. Nothing wrong with that. But another thing that I find a lot of people do when they first start dating is they're hyper and and everyone does this. It's not strange, but I think people should put this into context. People are just hyper focused on. Um, you know, first date indications. Like the person will go on a first date with someone and it'll be like, yeah, and his shoes were really dirty. And, you know, I don't know what that means. Does that mean that he's homeless? What What is that? You know, you'll literally hear people talk like that. And it's like, they're, and then they go on another date and it turns out that uh, the guy's driveway uh, just has a mud puddle and he stepped in it or something. And uh, people just get really, you know, he said that he likes to talk with his mom every weekend. Is he a mama's boy? You know, these kinds of extrapolations. And I get it, you know, cause you're scared of, of, is this going to work? Is this the right person? And uh, what I recommend people do is like, just date, just let it, let it be, you know, you'll know, you'll figure it out, you know, just, just take a break from trying to evaluate everything and, and predict everything in the beginning. Anyway, all right. Well, that was an interesting episode, responding to a whole slew of dating questions. Let me know what you think. Email me. Go to the website, psychologysale.com. Click on the contact button, and you can email me there. And patrons out there, thank you so much. You really are the wind beneath my wings, truly. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.